worship today. Father and Mother God, we thank you and we praise you for all of the things that you have done in our lives and our communities. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would speak through me, that I would move out of the way, and that your words would be what we hear. Um, and that um, whatever um, you have for us this Sunday, um, from the beginning of our worship um, to the very end, um, that you would be glorified in all things. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'll lift this up a little bit because I am a tall man. Um, <laughs> Um, but there's so much more about biblical history 
that goes beyond just the stories of Moses and David and the judges. Um, the context that Held Evans is speaking about when she talks about this library um, really matters. If we take a look at this passage in John 6, there's so much history to consider that might not necessarily jump off the page when we read it. Um, so I'll preface this in saying, I know not everyone is as invigorated by the minutia of Judaic history, so I will speak into the cliff notes version. Uh, the Old Testament is, in fact, filled with the victories and tragedies of the people of Israel. So I'm going to stick very closely to my notes here to ensure that I don't go off on an Old Testament history tangent. Uh, so by the time we get to the New Testament, we find the Israelites, known at this point as the Jews, under the rule of the Roman Empire. But in between the Old Testament and the New are centuries of war over essentially the same land that was promised to Abraham. It's the same land that Moses leaves the Israelites to after God delivers them from slavery. It's the same land that David rules over as king, where his son Solomon establishes and builds the temple to God in Jerusalem 500 years after the Exodus, after the events of the Prince of Egypt and Mariah Carey and who else is that? Another sermon. 
preaching for a bit, doing miracles, and that's all well and good. And the people are definitely impressed, but he's the Messiah, the foretold prophet. He says it right there in the text, right? They know he's coming with some sort of power. Um, but Jesus, blessed, and, uh, blessed are the meek gospel, um, is cool. He's just not the Messiah that the Jews had expected. It's like um, today, if we were waiting for some prophesied Superman destined to set things right and break down the oppression that we experience in our everyday life, and that dude shows up, except instead of being Superman, it's Queer Eyes Jonathan Van Ness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wonderful, very wonderful. Just not a guy who might be up to the task of tearing down the very real oppressive regime that you live under. Um, and so it is this tension that characterizes the entirety of Christ's ministry and death. Um, it is in this tension that we find the crowd gathered at the beginning of this passage. One might say there are very real and tangible parallels to the world we live in now, a world where the people are disconnected from political, social, and economic power, where we feel there is a lack of justice and right. And yet, Jesus' message is still a radical one, even today. But the Messiah does not come to bring his kingdom with the sword or with war. But why not? Why doesn't Jesus just summon the conquerors to liberate the Jews, to uh, uh, set the oppressed free and to strike down the injustice of the Romans? Because the gospel cannot, cannot, cannot just be good news for the Jews. It has to be good news for the Romans, too. It has to be good news for the Gentiles, too, and for all of creation. It has to be the good news for everyone. And yet the question still remains, what is our response as followers of Christ to a society that is unjust and oppressive? And what the heck does any of this have to do with black creativity and worship? (laughs) Well, I will tell you, I don't think it is a hard connection to draw between the Jews living under Roman rule and the lived experiences and histories of black communities around the world. Many black Christian communities read the stories of the Israelites and their oppression at the hands of several empires and draw inspiration in how they view God and our place in the world. There's a reason why Harriet Tubman was called Moses as she led her people from slavery to safety. Gospel music even is filled with those sorts of illusions, and they're the foundation for much of black theology. Black theologian James Cone is one of the original advocates of a black theology or black liberation theology, which focuses on the liberation of non-white people from multiple forms of political, social, economic, and religious subjugation, and draws heavily from Yahweh's God in the Old Testament, deliverance of an oppressed people to the promised land. According to writer Jonathan L. Walton, quote, Cone believes that the New Testament reveals Jesus as one who identified with those suffering under oppression socially marginalized and cultural outcasts. Beyond this liberation theology contends that dominant cultures have appropriated Christianity and the result of a mainstream faith-based empire that serves its own interests and not God's. You can stop me if this sounds familiar to you, but I can go on. The point is that we can look at the history and context of this passage and see not only experience of black faith communities, but maybe see our own experience as a community of Christ followers. Again, our worship is more than just songs. It is more than just listening to inspirational words that come from the pulpit. It is an extension of the kingdom-building work of Christ. So, 
returning to the set. Here is John 6, in response to all of this context and the great need in front of him, Jesus sets an example of what it means to worship together in spite of the circumstances of the day. The first illustration from this passage about worship is that it is communal. It entails us coming together. It should not be overlooked that in this time of great need after the assassination of a popular religious, cultural, and community figure, the Jewish people gathered together. The writer of the gospel actually tells us that it's near Passover, a festival celebration of their ancestral deliverance from Egyptian bondage. There's that uh, Jewish history again for you. Uh, they are looking for their own deliverance, looking for a solution, looking to make sense of senseless violence in their time. Certainly there are parallels to draw here. The assassination of MLK and Mark Malcolm X and Medgar Evers and Harry and Harriet Moore and Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown and Tamir Rice. And I can't help thinking about the crowd that gathered in New York when Eric Gardner was killed. The confusion that so many people felt then when, like in so many of these cases, those responsible are not held accountable. It is hard to believe in a system of justice when those with access to power don't seem to be held to an equal standard. And we can go on all the other ways in which justice fails us today. Whether it's military violence, or violence against women, or violence against queer and trans people, or anyone who is other. Even violence against the natural world, for each of us there is something that makes us look to the sky and claim like the Old Testament psalmist, there are no signs for us to see. There is no longer any prophet, and none of us know how long this will last. So often what brings people through the doors of this church, this very church, in fact, um, are answers, looking for answers to that confusion. Okay, so in a fair bit of honesty, what brought me through those doors originally was a roommate convincing me that it was a good place to meet eligible bachelors. <laughs> Still single, by the way. <laughs> But often what brings people through those doors of the church is a search for answers to a wild and confusing world. And though we don't always have the answers, we have the ability to come together, to say we can bear that burden with you collectively, declaring that we will not be defeated. We demonstrate that worship is communal. I'll never forget that very same first Sunday that I visited, Pastor Hannah said right here, uh, the week after Philando Castile was shot and killed by a police officer. I don't remember the words he prayed specifically, um, but I remember feeling like this community could bear the burden that I was bringing with me, that God cared about my need. I think about, I'm going to go a little off script here for a second, I think about Tanya's testimony and thinking about the things that we all bring with us on a Sunday basis. What we say and how we treat each other and how we care about each other and how we bear each other's burdens matters. It matters. It matters in, in the scripture, in the text, and it matters here, today, and now. So though through the concerns of the week, the disappointments of politics and the president, our Sunday worship brings us together to seek Christ, just like this crowd is following Jesus in John 6. So the second illustration about worship we find in this text is that it is nourishing, it enriches us. Of the crowd that gathered that day uh, following Jesus, Dr. John Paul uh, Lederach, founding member, founding director of the Center of Justice and Peace Spring at Eastern Mennonite University, writes, 
The feeding of the 5,000 is another occasion where violence skirts at the edges of a meal. There is tangible mob potential here that we should not miss. Um, the doctor points out that 5,000 men is not just a crowd, it is the exact number of men in a Roman legion. And so with this restless crowd in front of him, with all the power of heaven and earth in his hand, Jesus shows us how to take care of each other. Our world and society are one where social change can feel so far away, so distant from where we are now. Jesus sets an example here that radical, loving worship includes caring for one another. Um, for example, in the 60s, the Black Panther Party built much of its reputation on its feeding program. Um, in fact, by 1969, the Panthers were feeding an estimated 10,000 children each morning, mostly through black churches. And it is also rare, if you ever have grown up or have visited a black church, that you are not warmly ushered to a basement or a side room with hot food and hospitality. The Gospel of Mark says that when Jesus looked to the crowds, he felt compassion for them. The miracle he provides is not one that changes the world. When the people leave, there will still be those concerns that grip them. Indeed, just like a hot plate won't make police brutality go away. What we have to offer very often among each other seems like so little, as small as two fish and five loaves of barley. And yet Christ shows us that in the face of this need, we cannot despair. We must lift each other up and nourish each other. I know for sure there have been times when my job has been brutal and unfair and unjust, and it was the tangible care and nourishment, both spiritual and edible, that reminded me of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Worship is communal, worship is nourishing, and worship gives us hope. This last illustration is we're all in. In the church that I grew up in, I think you'll find uh, this is true for most black churches. Um, there is a shared belief that Sunday service is like a recharge. We experience hardship and disappointment through the week. So when we turn to church on Sunday, on Wednesday night, or on Thursday night, to be reminded of the providence of God. Even as Tanya came up and shared her testimony, um, I imagine and remember times when I was a child looking to the adults who would stand up during testimony time, spontaneously inspired by the Holy Spirit to share the way that God was moving in their lives. I can think of times when there was no other opportunity, there was no other uh, outcome but failure, where God moved miraculously in my life. And maybe that hasn't happened for you, maybe it didn't come in the form of an angel coming down to you in a coma telling you that there was reason to live. But I think we all can think to moments in our lives where God made a way out of no way. Much of Christian theology as a whole, um, but black theology in particular, at its core, is radically hopeful. In a reflection on her blog, Episcopal priest Will Gaffney writes, Jesus teaches his contemporary disciples to clean fungus, rat, or a poor crop to greatly imperil food security and survival. Bread in the scriptures is the stuff of life, that without which we cannot survive, and that which enables us to do more than survive, but creates the possibility that we will have the opportunity to thrive. As followers of Christ, we 
cannot just see ourselves as helpless in the face of despair that's so ready to find us when we read the news or scroll through social media. Through this miracle, Jesus invites us to envision a world where the little that we have is multiplied. Not just so that everyone is satisfied, but that we have 12 baskets of excess. Rachel Evans writes that we live inside an unfinished story. Seriously, for a second, look around you. Seriously, look, look around you. Look at the people here. Look at our community. Really take a moment and consider that we are all coming from our different concerns of life and school and work and everything else to worship and to honor God. That is a tremendous unifying force. Because when we come together, when we care for each other, when we reach for hope instead of for despair, our worship is more than just song. It is powerful. It is radical. It is gospel. Amen? Amen.